Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. As Americans, we love second chance stories. And if you're a sports fan, you've noticed probably in the, in the headlines lately, there's been a ton of them. I don't know how many of you filled out your brackets for March Madness. Hopefully the pain of that is over with by this point. That was a couple weeks ago. But I don't know if we have any Virginia fans here today. Any Virginia? Yeah, we got a few. Some Virginia fans, mostly Duke, UNC, NC Staters. Um, but Virginia fans, you probably know this. Some other folks might not realize this. Not only did you win the national championship, but that was quite a second chance story. Because the year before, it's about to get painful, Virginia fans, listen to this. They were the first number one seed to ever lose to a 16 seed. And if you were watching the tournament last year, you may have remember, everybody loves the upset, right? Does anybody even remember who the team was that beat them? Somebody knew the full name. University of Maryland, Baltimore College. A proud alum in the back. <laughs> UMBC was ranked 188th in offense last year. And they knocked off a number one seed in Virginia. And so when they won the national championship this year, that was a second chance story. Not only that, but to make it even sweeter, did you watch, sorry Auburn fans, did you watch the Final Four game? When Kyle Guy was in the corner and he gets the ball and he's going to shoot the three like every kid dreams about doing in their driveway, right? He shoots the three, bank, off the rim. No good. So what do you do when you're in your driveway when you're a kid growing up, right? You're dribbling out there, you're, play, you're imagining three, I must be butter, I'm on a roll, you're dribbling, three, two, one, clank, foul. Three shots, down by two, sinks them all, goes to the finals. Virginia was a second chance team. And you see other headlines that are out there. I don't know if any of you are basketball fans, but the Clippers the other night, they were down by 31 points. ESPN said a .01% chance of winning at that. Now listen, they were playing Golden State. They probably got a .01% chance of winning any game. Down by 31, they won the game. Biggest comeback victory in NBA playoff history. It's a second chance. But no headline has been grabbed quite like Tiger Woods. Did you watch last weekend, the Masters? Those of you who are golf fans? Tiger Woods is one of those rare athletes that you know who we're talking about just when we say one name. Michael, Babe, Tiger. Because he had a meteoric rise to popularity as a golfer. He, he was a prodigy. At 11 months old, he started playing golf. Two years old, he was on CBS News. At 21 years old, in 1997, was the youngest player to ever win the Masters. And some of you may remember the picture of him hugging his father afterwards. It's been all over the news since. And then if you watched golf, you knew that Tiger dominated golf. He's got 15 majors. There was a big gap between 14 and 15. Because in the late 90s, and the early 2000s, Tiger Woods literally dominated golf. He was like the Mike Tyson or the Michael Jordan of golf. And so he's winning continually. He's on the run, making more money than any golfer's ever made, super popular, celebrity deals, like on all these commercials. But then his life, as fast as it went up, went down. It's debatable about when it happened, maybe 2006, when his father, Earl, who you saw in the picture, died. But for sure in 2009, when he had that infamous car crash in front of his house, that then revealed not only his infidelity to his wife, but his sexual addiction, and then the downward spiral of his golf game, and people on the outside are looking going, how could you ruin all of that? You had it all. Maybe you were a phony. Maybe it was all a facade. You were just a fake, and he keeps trying to come back. But then he gets a knee injury. 
and gets back injuries, has four back surgeries, gets addicted to painkillers. At the height of his, just as fast as he went up, at the height of his going down, maybe you remember this infamous picture, his DUI picture, that you'll see people even at tournaments today wearing T-shirts with that picture on it. And so last Sunday at the Masters when he went in, down two strokes, Maybe you'll understand with that backdrop why grown men in this room that will never confess it to you were crying when they watched him come from behind that day and win the Masters, and at the end of that day, instead of Tiger being hugged by his father, Tiger is the father, and he's hugging his son, as we see here. And so many people, when he jumped up, people that hate Tiger, when he's jumping up and he's doing his yell with his red shirt and his black pants, they're at home going, yeah! Why? Because we love second chances. Now let me tell you something. As we open up God's word today, the temptation for me is to preach to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ like it is a second chance, like it's your second chance. But here's the bad news. It's not. Here's even worse news. You need more than a second chance. Here's the good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just a second chance. And so today, as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to ask yourself this question, how can I receive more than just a second chance? Because the resurrection of Christ is that. It is more than just a new beginning. It is more than just a fresh start. It is more than just wiping the slate clean. It's more than that. And the good news is, you need that. And I need that. And that's why we can sing the songs we were singing before I got up here to talk. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me just tell you my goal for you today. I'm not going to hide it. My hope, my goal for you is not that anybody comes to church and just, hey, it was Easter, check the box, got that in. Now we can go to lunch, the family, and hang out and watch some sports. My goal for you is not to tell you the resurrection story from a perspective you've never heard before and have you be like, oh, I didn't know that, and learn something. I don't want to convince you of the resurrection, the historicity of the resurrection. My hope and goal for you is that you encounter the resurrected Christ and your life has changed. And so how can we have more than just a second chance? Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, I've told you we're going through this series together. So far, we've talked about things like division, talked about marriage, talked about sex. We're going to pick it back up next week. But this week, we're talking about this topic, the resurrection. And you're going to see that Paul, the guy who writes this letter, says the resurrection is the, uh, the thing of first importance, the most important thing. One Yale historian said this about the resurrection. He said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. That's how central this is to all of history. So let me read with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 11 today. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to, and there's a whole bunch of people, Cephas, then the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, as to one, the Greek word, miscarried or aborted, he appeared also to me. This is the Apostle Paul, the guy who writes this letter speaking. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, so he didn't get credit for the work they did. It was empowered by grace. Grace isn't just for the past. Grace is for the present, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. And here, Paul's talking about the most important thing in all of human history, the resurrection of Christ. He calls it in verse 1, the gospel. That means the the good news. And he outlines four things about that. And you can look back here at verse 3, what the four things are. That Christ died, that he was buried, that he raised, that he appeared to a whole bunch of people. You know what's so interesting to me about this passage is not just the facts that are here. There's a lot of things here that can prove the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had a real body. Some people argue that it was just a phantom, it was just a spirit. That he was buried in a real grave. Let me tell you something. I went there this past January. It's still empty. We're going to go next year. If anybody wants to come, you can come see. I bet it'll still be empty next year. Do you know why the tomb is empty? One, so we could prove facts about a historical thing that happened. And so your life doesn't have to be empty. Do you know why Jesus is alive? It's so that he can give you new life. So you need more than a second chance. What blows me away about this passage is not the historical facts that are mentioned here. Not even that there were eyewitnesses. This is about 20 years after it happened. And Paul's going, he appeared to 500 people at once. You want to know about it? Just go. Most of them are still alive. Just go ask one of them. If you don't believe my preaching, just go ask somebody who saw it happen, and they'll tell you an eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And do you know what it is that convinces me about the resurrection? It's not all those facts. It's not like how impossible it would be to steal the body. It's not about the soldiers that were there, how heavy the stone was. Like, you can lay all that stuff out. What convinces me is that we know about human, people will lie about outrageous things. But they all have a breaking point. And these guys, 11 guys, 12, you count Paul, these guys, they all took this, if it was a lie, they took it to their grave. They weren't trained in interrogation. In fact, I love what Chuck Colson said. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is, he was a special advisor to the president, President Nixon, back during the Watergate scandal. And uh, he said this, we'll put it on the screen. We've got this quote. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. They couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles would keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. But my goal is not to prove to you the resurrection today. See, a lot of people believe in the resurrection and they're headed for hell. Satan believes in the resurrection. Demons believe in the resurrection. So the goal is not to get you to believe the resurrection. I want you to have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. That's why what's so interesting to me about this passage are the names of the people that are mentioned that saw it. Because they were all people that needed more than a second chance and received more than a second chance. And so if we ask ourselves the question, how can I do that, what do they do? Well, the first thing, there's three points today. The first one is this, that you must recognize your need for more than a second chance. You must recognize your need for more than a second chance. So we all have needs. But a lot of times we become unaware of them in our lives. Like if I asked you, like write down some of your needs, food, water, air, like just things, we just take them for granted, especially like in our culture where we're not like, think about food. We're not hunting for food. We don't have to go, like, go scavenge for food. There's like supermarkets, drive through windows. Dunkin' Donuts is like pleading for you, come get some food, come through here. Whole Foods, whatever, different food places that are around here. But you know how you can see the need is when the food's gone. So I've lived in North Carolina long enough to know how this works. 
all that has to happen is WRAL comes on and says there's going to be snow, right? <laughs> huh? Then there's no bread, there's no milk. And what do you decide you need at that moment? We need milk. We need bread. Why? Why? Because when it doesn't snow, then you're like, what, are we going to make milk sandwiches? Like, what do we do now? <laughs> Every one of us sitting here right now, take, we need oxygen, but we're just kind of breathing. If someone takes that away, all of a sudden you'll recognize your need. You know the deepest need in all of our lives is a need for God. The book of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 that God purposed eternity in all of our hearts. And so it doesn't matter whether you believed in God, you have a longing for God. It expresses itself in different ways with different people. Some people, it's, does my life matter? Does this job, is this the right job? Is this the right marriage? Am I doing the right, am I in the right place? It's a longing for God. Some people, it's shame and guilt. It's a longing for forgiveness, which is a longing for God. St. Augustine said it like this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, talking about God. We've got a need for God. And the thing about each one of the folks in this passage that Paul mentions here is they all knew they had a need. Think about them, and, and you can go to the list here, and, and, you start, and you could be tempted to say, it's the list when he, who he appeared to, but if you look at verse 1, it says that the Corinthians themselves, he's not writing them to convince them of the resurrection. He says, let me remind you of what you already know to be true. The good news you've received. And, and if you were with us for this series that we've been doing, Letters to RDU, you know when we talked about sex a, a couple weeks ago, I read a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that says, you, you know, these people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And this is God's word. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So they have a need. And such were, and that's the key word, such were some of you. But you were washed. They were cleansed of their sins. You were sanctified. That's a Bible word that means set apart. You were justified. That means you were made right with God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Corinthians had a need. They knew their need, and they had been changed because they recognized their need. But it wasn't just them. Think about who's not mentioned in this passage. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't mention who we heard Billy Graham talking about when we first came into the service? It's a story you traditionally hear when you come to an Easter service. And so if you only come to church on Easter, you've heard this story before. These women, Mary Magdalene, always mentioned as one of them, the only one mentioned in John chapter 20, goes to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. And when they get there, the, the tomb is empty. But what, who's Mary Magdalene? The very fact that she's mentioned in the story should be proof to you if you're a skeptic that this story is not made up. Because anybody making up the story is not going to have a woman go to the tomb. Because in that time, a woman's testimony wasn't even valid in court. So who's going to pick a woman to be the one that comes for this false story, but not only a woman, Mary Magdalene? See, we read about her earlier in the New Testament. She had seven demons cast out of her. She was a woman with a story. It's a picture of God's grace. She had a need. And we don't know the details. How, how did she get seven demons? What, what in her life subjected her to having seven demons possessed? We don't know. But we know that God is more than just the God of second chances. Because we need more than a second chance. And she knew that she needed more than a second chance. And you go to the passage and it says Cephas. Cephas is another name for a guy named Peter. 
Peter's a popular character. If you read the Gospels, he was very close with Jesus, but what he's mostly known for is being an idiot. That's a Bible term, for those of you who didn't get it. If your kid's here uh, and you tell them not to say that term, don't listen to me. Forget that. He'd say stupid stuff all the time. Constantly, his, his mouth went way faster than his brain. I love the guy. I can identify with him because I put my foot in my mouth so many times. Peter was always saying dumb stuff. One time, Jesus says to all the disciples, but when I, go to, when I get arrested and I'm being crucified, you're all going to betray me? And Peter goes, I don't care what the rest of these losers do. I'm with you until the death. Like, I'm going. I got you, Jesus. You know what happens? When Jesus is being beaten in the high priest's courtyard, a servant girl comes up to Peter, a little girl. Say, weren't you with him? I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. Another servant girl. I don't know. Three times before the rooster crows. You see, Peter was a man who knew he needed more than just a second chance. And then Paul talks about himself. Look what Paul said in verses 8 and 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, it might be a connection to when Jesus told Nicodemus you need to be born again. And Paul realizes how unworthy he is. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now listen, there might be some people here today, I don't know all of you, some of you might come here today and think that you've sinned so bad, God can't forgive you. He was intentionally killing Christians. Have you done that? He can still forgive you if you said yes. But he says, I would, I'm the chief of sinners, First Timothy, it's a letter he writes to a young pastor, First Timothy chapter 1, and verse 13 through 15. He says, I was the blasphemer, persecutor of the church. I was killing Christians intentionally. I'm the foremost of all sinners. And it puts God's grace on display because he knew he had a need. Do you know you have a need? Do you know your need? Because many of us, we miss it. And why do we miss it? Well, I was reading this week and thinking through, why are so many, there's so many people in the Bible that had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus that didn't follow him. They believed he existed. They believed, a lot. They believed he died on the cross. Many of them even believed he rose from the dead. But they didn't trust him as their savior. Why? And this is an exhaustive list, but here's a few reasons for you to think about, and because they're the reasons I think that most people in North Raleigh and Durham and Cary and Holly Springs, they don't realize their need. And the first one is self-deception. Many of us, we deceive ourselves. We rationalize our sin. We minimize our sin. We justify our sin. And, and we look at people like Tiger, and we think, why could you do that? Let me tell you the answer. Because sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us do stupid stuff, and it causes us not to see what we're doing in our own lives. Anybody who's sinned a lot can testify to this. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and many of you will identify with this. He was alone with his own sin, is utterly alone. You see, sin is dark, and it keeps us in darkness, and we can't see what's going on in our own lives. One reason that we don't see our own need is our self-deception. Another reason is our self-righteousness. This will be easy to illustrate in light of the introduction that I gave you when I was talking about Tiger Woods and how much we love second-chance stories. Some of you, when I said that you need more than a second chance, were like, no, no, no. All I need, if you think that all you need is a second chance, it proves your utter self-righteousness. Because let me, let me say this to you. If you got a second chance, then what? You're going to blow it again, FYI, and you're going to need a third chance and a fourth chance and a one millionth chance because on your own, you will keep blowing it. If you think all you need is a clean slate, if I just knew what I knew then, now, and I could do it again, 
you're self-righteous. You see, who Jesus had the most tension with in the Bible were people that were self-righteous. When he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, when he, his most famous sermon, he starts off by telling people, if you want to enter heaven, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Most of us, we've heard the word Pharisee, we know that means like a hypocrite. No, the people then, they thought the Pharisees were the most righteous people of their day. They gave the most money to the church. They did the most good deeds. They, they were always avoided bad behavior. They had behavior modification. They were moral people. It's what we call cultural Christians in the South. And they were blinded to their need for Jesus Christ because of their own self-righteousness. And Jesus says to them at one point in Mark chapter 2, he says, doctors, they don't come for healthy people. They come for sick people. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Jesus wasn't saying to those people, you're righteous. He was saying, you're so self-righteous, you can't see my call to you as a sinner. Self-righteousness blinds us. You know what else blinds us? Self-centeredness. Many of us are blinded by our own self-centeredness. There's an interesting guy in the Bible. He's a rich guy, and he's pretty young, and so oftentimes we refer to him as the rich young ruler. He had leadership abilities, and, and he comes to Jesus one time and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, paraphrasing, just be perfect, do all, obey all the commandments. And he goes, yeah, I've done that. And Jesus knows our hearts. And Jesus doesn't say, good job, man. Here's your participation award. He says, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. Notice Jesus doesn't say, give me the money. He says, go give it to the poor. Just, he knows that this man's real God is money. And he says to him, go sell, and the guy goes away sad. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that some people come to Jesus and they're blind and they go away seeing? And some people come to Jesus and their daughter has just died and their daughter gets raised from the dead. And some people come to Jesus like the woman with a bleeding issue and her bleeding issue is healed and this guy goes away sad. Because what this guy really came to Jesus for was boost my self-esteem. Tell me I'm doing a good job. Put it, give me an attaboy, Jesus. Pat me on the back. Don't you realize how much work I've done for you? We're so self-centered, we don't even see our need for Jesus. But here's the reality. 100% of the people in this room today will die. I don't think anybody will argue that. Do you know what you have a need for? Because we're going to die, we have a need for life. 100% of the people in this room today have sinned. We're born sinners because we're born in the line of Adam, and then we also practice sin. We've all done sin. We're like doubly sinners. You know what we need? We need forgiveness. 100% of us at some point in time will wonder, is there more to life than just this? We want our lives to matter. And so what we need is life. We need forgiveness. We need a purpose. And you know what? The resurrection gives us all those things. It's not just a second chance. But first, you have to recognize your need. If you recognize your need, then you know what you can do? Second point is you can rejoice in the news of the resurrection. You must rejoice in the news of the resurrection. Did you see verse 1? What Paul says to them when, he, when he's writing to them, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That word gospel is a Greek word, euangelion. It means good news. And he's reminding them of the good news in their lives that transformed their lives. The good news I preached to you, which you received, which you stand. And then he goes on and he lists the, the story of Easter. And think about the story of Easter. Think about some of the promises Jesus made in his ministry. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Anybody here get weary or burdened? Let me ask the question another way. Anybody here have kids? Okay. Anybody here get tired of your job? Anybody here ever just want to quit? Ever just wonder, did I just start all over somewhere? I'm going to move to like some island and I have to think about anything. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Think about, he says, destroy this temple and I'll, I'll rebuild it in three days. 
I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. I am the vine. I am the door. You not come through me. I am the living water. If anybody's thirsty, you have any longings in your life. I am the bread of life. Like think about all those, all those big statements he made, all those big promises he made. And then imagine what it was like, that first statement that he says here is the good news of Jesus, that Christ died. Imagine being there on that dark Friday. And Jesus has been beaten, he's got that crown of thorns, blood's running down his face, he's been beaten beyond the recognition of a man, his beard's been torn out, he's naked, he's utterly humiliated, and people are saying, if you are the son of God, come down from there. Do you know what all those promises sound like? The ramblings of a madman. They're empty. But then, three days later, he's buried in a real grave with a real body, and his followers are expecting to find a dead body And these women go to the tomb, and it's empty. He's not there. In fact, it says, if you read the gospel accounts, the clothes are folded. So Jesus was a neat person. He folded his linens up and set them there. And what do they say? He's not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That is good news. But do you know what we see here in this passage? It's better than just good news. See, good news, we think of like somebody had a baby, somebody got engaged, somebody won a lottery, like you got a new job, something. Listen to what Paul said in verse 10. But by the grace, that word gets mentioned three times in one verse. It's kind of a significant word. But by the grace of God, I am, it changes identity. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So he's given me something. Remember he said they received it in verse 1. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Well, then you should get some credit, right? No, that was not I. But it was only by the grace. I wouldn't even want to work if it wasn't for God. By the grace of God that was within me. You know what grace is? Grace is when you're given something you don't deserve. And that's why this good news is actually scandalous. Now think about that. Anybody ever told you the Easter story is a scandal? So most of us, when we think about scandals, we think about bad news, right? We think, about, think about the scandals we've seen this year. Just in the news. And some of you got certain ones. If you're a news follower, you know, the, the Trump with the Russia probe, and, and, and then the other party will say the Hillary with the email scandal. So you just fight back and forth, and you're like, does any of this even matter? Just, argue, just people arguing with each other. And you got Jesse Smollett who fakes his own attack and then gets randomly pardoned. And, and then you got sex scandals like all, every other week. And then you've got a, a Wall Street type scandals of people stealing money. And there's all these scandals, a college admission scandal, a bribe, rich people bribing to get their kids into school that didn't earn it. And so depending on where you're at in that process, you've got different feelings about There's all these scandals. They're all bad. Think about how the gospel, here's why the gospel of Jesus Christ, the news of the resurrection, is a scandal. Because Jesus didn't come to reward righteous people and punish evil people. Jesus didn't come to be your self-esteem booster and tell you what a great job you did. He came to be your redeemer. So you didn't need a second chance. You needed a substitute. And Jesus Christ, when he was on that cross, it wasn't just the physical torture he endured. When darkness covered the earth, he was being forsaken by his Father because he was becoming your sin. He was your substitute. The penalty for sin is death. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was dying in your place. You didn't need a clean slate because you'd screw up again. What you needed was a substitute. What you needed was a Savior. And if you know your need, then you can rejoice in that news. Amen? Amen. See, he became sin 
so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's why Paul says, it's by the grace of God. I am what I am. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified. I've been set apart by God. I've been used by God because God chose to use his grace in my life, not only to save me, but then to use me because he's more than a second chance. He's a substitute for you. And that's the Easter story, and that's scandalous because Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So did he come to call you? Because it's not just enough to know the news. It's not just enough to know your need. You must receive this good news. You must receive this good news. You must receive the opportunity, our third point, that God's offering you, and it's an opportunity for new life. And that's what happened with these people. Let me read to you verse one again. And I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, that's the verb there, in which you now stand, those of you who have already received Christ, remember what Jesus came to give. He said in John 10, 10, I came that you could have life, you could have it abundantly. John chapter 3 has an encounter with a really religious guy, and he tells that guy, you must be born again. And then the famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would have what? Everlasting life. What did Jesus say? The claim that's so divisive to so many other religions is Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, what Jesus gives is not just a second chance. What Jesus gives is new life, and we all need that because everyone here is going to die. We all need forgiveness because everyone here sins. We all need, Paul goes on in this passage, and we don't have enough time to get into it this week, but Later in verse 20, 21, 22, he says, if Jesus Christ hasn't risen, then none of life matters. It's like that Yale historian says, if Jesus is risen, nothing else matters. If Jesus is not risen, you're right, none of this matters. And so you know what he says later in 1 Corinthians 15? If that's true, be a hedonist. Eat, drink, tomorrow you die. But do you know what he says? Jesus has risen. And lives that have been transformed. Paul, James, Peter, Mary Magdalene, the Corinthians, the people here who've trusted and received this news are evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they've encountered the resurrected Christ. Anthony Flew was one time uh, one of the most popular philosophers of his day, he was an atheist. And he said, when you think about miraculous religious experiences, there are none that have as much evidence as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, he eventually became a theist. That means he believed there was a God. Even the demons believe that. He never embraced the resurrected Christ because he didn't embrace the news. And the news is he came to give you new life. You think about just Easter, it's springtime, right? And you see all this new life, flowers coming up, trees blossoming, pollen's there. That's just evidence of the curse, by the way, as somebody with allergies will tell you. But it's signs. There's signs of life. Signs of, have you ever seen a baby born? My wife and I, we have four kids. I remember when we had the first kid, how nervous I was. By the fourth kid, I was like, yep, yeah, this is how we do this. I get my glorious half chair, honey. You do all the work. I get what this is like. Every time, though, new life. There's new life that happens. That's, that's the story. And so you look at these people that are mentioned here, and it's interesting. You can walk through these folks in this passage. So, so you get somebody like James. James is the brother of Jesus. Do you know that G James did not believe in Jesus when Jesus was on his earthly ministry, in fact, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 22, they came to restrain him because they thought he was a madman. Can you, now just try, before you give James a hard time, try and think about what it was like to be the brother of Jesus. 
Like Jesus never sinned. And then you're his next, the next brother, James. Like can you imagine when Joseph, dad, comes walking into the room, there's a fight in the room. Who started this? Oh, well, you know, it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> James? Like who caused this problem here? Not Jesus. Must be James because he's the next oldest one. And so James didn't even like Jesus. And you know what's interesting? In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that he appeared to James, but nowhere in the Bible do we have that story. So what must it have been like for James to think that his brother was a madman? John chapter 7, verse 5, none of his brothers believed in him. And then after Jesus dies, three days later, to have Jesus appear to him? Maybe like Paul, that's how he was converted. Because you know what happens when James talk about new life? He became the first pastor of a church in Jerusalem. He was martyred for his faith. He wrote a book in the Bible, creatively titled James. <laughs> but to somebody that goes from not believing to dying for their belief, that's a new life. You got Paul. Paul, obviously, he was persecuting the church. He writes the majority of the New Testament, 180 degree turn. He goes around proclaiming the good news that plants churches that changes lives. You got Mary Magdalene from seven demons to a follower of Jesus. The 500, we don't have all their names, we don't know all the individual stories, but there are probably many of the people that were in Corinth, and such were some of you. But you were changed because they received the new, the Peter, Cephas that's mentioned here. Do you know what happens with Peter? The guy who denies Jesus before a servant girl, then in Acts chapter two, stands before thousands of people the very people who nailed Jesus to a cross and says, you killed God. And you know what they think? What any of us should think because it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. I'm toast. What do I do? Is there a second chance? And he says, you repent. That's a Bible word that means to stop. You're headed, you're leading your own life. You're doing your own thing. Stop and turn and turn to God. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death, is one of the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. And what you do is you, you relinquish control of your life, and you realize that Jesus is Lord. See, if he, if he rose from the dead, do you know what it says at the end of this chapter? Chapter 15, verse 58 says this, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you know why? Because Jesus defeated death, the last great enemy that we have. If he has authority over death, shouldn't he be allowed to have authority in our lives? And so how do we respond to him? Let me read you a verse from Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's not just saying words. Lord means he has all authority. That means you're surrendering authority of your life to him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That means rescued. From your need. Do you recognize your need? If so, then you can rejoice in the news. There is an opportunity, but you've got to receive the opportunity. The opportunity is one for new life. I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive that right now.